following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. As you can see from our turnout tonight, this is a pretty interesting and compelling topic. It's important to preface this discussion with a disclaimer. Obviously, when people approach the study of ancient civilizations, they do so with certain methodologies, that which is studied at university or in history courses. Our perspective on these ancient traditions is very different. We do not approach the Mayans or the ancient civilizations as merely a list of information like dead facts, some kind of knowledge that we can compartmentalize within our box, information that we can recall or remember and cite with authority. What's different about our tradition is that we really try to extract the practical essence of real spiritual wisdom from these ancient cultures, not merely to look at them like artifacts, like a corpse. We want to live and breathe the mysteries of these ancient civilizations, which in many ways are far superior to our own. It's also important to emphasize too, that when approaching the study of the Mayan uh, past, that like our culture today, there's a very broad and rich spectrum of different attitudes, ideas, philosophies, perspectives, traditions. And just in the same way that we would not look at our current era in a homogenous view, but instead looking at the particularities, the intricacies, and the diversity, we also recognize that the Mayan mysteries themselves are very diverse. In fact, 
they're so profound and rich that we fail to understand them. And this is very evident by the methodologies and approaches and the perspectives, the interpretations that some scholars have of the ancients. So part of what we'll do today is that we're going to demonstrate that the Mayan mysteries illustrate a universal path that what they taught is not a dead thing. They spoke in the allegories of stone, in their pyramids and sculptures, a path of initiation into a higher spiritual way of being, a form of development and even perfection. This is especially today we'll talk about the Mayan mysteries, but also we're going to tie it into the Jewish cosmology as well. Because these different traditions share the same roots. They merely have different perspectives and time to that which is eternal. We're also going to explain how, why, and in what manner our soul acquires necessary experiences so that we can properly and profoundly know divinity, no matter what the name, no matter the language. In our Gnostic tradition, we're not interested in debating which cultural form is the most true or is the true, authentic, and accurate representation. We look at everything together because divinity, which is formless, takes on forms throughout time to convey deep truths. So we'll talk about how to know that divinity for ourselves, because that's really where the practical essence of real religion is hidden. We'll also identify, elucidate, and synthesize the process by which consciousness emerges, transmigrates, and returns to the divine. Especially we'll correlate such principles to the wisdom traditions of the ancient Mayans and even to modern Mayan mysticism. It's important to recognize that, as with any religion, sacred geography is very deep. We know that in the Bible, the Judeo-Christian text, that there are many places of great import, like Sinai. As with any religion, there are many myths about great prophets, heroes, saints, rising up a mountain in order to receive the revelation of God. Obviously, a mountain is a metaphor. It is about the spiritual path that leads to divinity, no matter what the name. But obviously, that path is very difficult, very challenging, and arduous. People who climb mountains, obviously, in our current era, have certain tools and things that they use to do so. But if you think from the perspective of the ancients who sought to climb, this path is very hard, both literally and spiritually. This is why the Mayan initiates refer to the Andes as a description or representation of the path itself. 
Even the term Mayab from the Nawat is very significant and represents a symbolic significance to sacred geography. Ma, the syllable means no, and Yab means many. The Mayab is the land of the few, or better said, the chosen ones. You look at any religion, any culture, any ancient civilization, and many stories represent or relate that there have been few luminaries embodying the light of the highest ethical caliber and wisdom so that they may, through their actions and guidance, teach those who are ignorant, who are suffering in this, we could say, valley of tears. There have been few properly prepared individuals who learn to embody the highest truths within religion. And the Mayans were no different. Therefore, they represent the land of the Mayab as the land of the few. Because if you look at even humanity today, you find that there are few masters and perhaps many believers, many imitators. There are few initiates, few of those who really live really the essence of religion, of wisdom, of yoga, of reunion. There is also a type of destiny that guides individuals who are initiated into this type of work. And the Mayan mysteries especially condense much of that information in a very beautiful way. They taught in their mysticism that the way to spiritual elevation and the overcoming of suffering is through what we call in our studies the Divine Mother. The Mayab referred to her as the sacred princess Saknikte. We can say that divinity, as we're going to relate later in this lecture, takes on different forms, is really a principle within us a form of being, which we can experience if we know how to climb, if we're willing to climb. The sacred princess Saknikte is the divine mother, and her spouse is the divine father, the great hidden lord from the sacred kingdom of the Mayab, the mountains of profound beauty and wisdom. There is a destiny that leads those who seek to understand the real heart of who and what we are, to explore and to be willing to question our mind, why we suffer, why we are in pain. And the Mayans refer to her as the gateway, the one who elevates the soul. She is the divine feminine of all religions, the Virgin Mary, Athena, Minerva, Coatlicu, amongst the Aztecs, Tara, amongst the Tibetan Buddhists. She is Shekinah, amongst the Hebraic Kabbalists. She is the one who frees the exiled soul 
and returns the chosen ones to the promised land, Israel, to use the Jewish biblical metaphor. So a person who seeks to understand the mysteries of the Mayeb seeks to explore the mystery of themselves, to no longer be a divided individual or a divided person, conflicted amongst multiple desires in a state of confusion, a state of lacking integrity. And that destiny teaches one to understand our place in the universe and how it is that we have a part to play with our humanity and that we do not leave others aside, but better said, work for the elevation of the spiritual elevation of our neighbor, of our family, of our friends, of our spouse, of the stranger. There is a book called The Flight of the Feathered Serpent, which is a more contemporary, or better said, modern work of Mayan mysticism. I'd like to relate some verses about this. Man has forgotten that there isn't a destiny which is entirely individual. But he who looks for and receives the kiss of the sacred princess Saknikte and listens to the silent voice of the great hidden Lord in the highest of the sacred kingdom of the Mayab becomes undivided and leaves aside individual illusion and does not look for another destiny save the one which is the destiny of the Mayab. What is that silent voice? It is intuition. It is conscience. It is our heart that says this is right and this is wrong. Following the heart is what opens the door to climbing this mountain and discovering our place in the universe, why we are in pain and why we are asleep, why we dream daily, ignoring who we are or what we could become. There have been many prophets and masters from different religions, not only amongst the Mayans, but also throughout humanity, who taught this type of work. We even have a saying from the Master Jesus of Nazareth, who was an embodiment of really the highest ideals. What few know or realize is that Jesus knew the Mayan mysteries. In fact, many of the teachings he gave in his gospels, in his parables, embody and encode teachings that the Maya gave many centuries ago. There's a famous, basically, um, saying of him on the cross, which is traditionally translated in a Hebrew way, Eli Eli Lama Savna Chani, which people have translated, at least the Hebrews and those witnessing his crucifixion, as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the truth is that his phrase is actually Mayan. Heli Heli Lama Zabaktani which translates, I am now immersing into the pre-dawn of thy presence. We mentioned this example of Jesus in relation to Mayan mysteries because 
what the Mayans taught, and what Christ taught, what many masters have taught, is the same. It is a universal doctrine. It is a profound practical wisdom. And so we seek to become like these great initiates, but we have to learn to die to what is impure in us as exemplified by the passion of Christ so that we can create light of a spiritual nature and immerse ourselves in the eternal. So what this path involves is a transcendence of what we currently are. And in a certain Mayan text, Mayan initiatic work called The Flight of the Feathered Serpent explains that we are men and women of clay. And clay is born from the mud. Our current life, we can say, is characterized by mud. We mean so in a psychological sense, in a spiritual sense, if we're willing to look at the reality of the facts. Our humanity is increasingly more confused, embroiled in conflicts, in hatred, in separatism, in flags, in pride. Humanity is only interested in superficial things, never asking the really deep questions about why we're in this mess of suffering that we see everywhere and which seems to be intensifying with greater acuity. What we seek is to take the mud of passions. Perhaps it is our anger, our lust, our animal desires, our egotistical qualities that make us suffer and make others suffer. But to transform that, to shape it, to bake it in the fire of divinity, to form what the Mayans referred to as the amphora of the soul. We are like clay in the sense that we are not formed yet and what we should and could be. We could become something even more transcendental and superior, divine. And this has been taught and exemplified by all the luminaries we have received as a humanity, no matter the culture, no matter the time, because this knowledge, the pre-dawn of eternity, is immutable, transhistorical, beyond our material senses. And so what we commonly have in our modern era is people who are only concerned with themselves. They're only focused on the illusion of their own destiny and have many words and theories and beliefs about how we are isolated, separate, distinct, and that everyone else is wrong. And yet we fail to ignore that our own actions and our own desires keep us writhing down below and not seeing that we could elevate ourselves to a higher destiny. In this sense, the flight of the feathered serpent 
provides a metaphor, a beautiful doctrine, which we're going to elaborate in the, in the next coming slides. In the man of clay, there is only an illusion of individual destiny. That is why he speculates with beautiful words and with foolish words, which only makes him see himself isolated and separated from everything that surrounds him and everything that common destiny is weaving. And this destiny is that which, in which what is below always tends to unite itself with what is above. And in this way, he lives under the law called of good and evil. For in this destiny, the serpent drags itself along the earth and only sees ahead and behind. And it does not have the plumage of a condor to lend its wings to take flight beyond the summit of the Andean mountains. So we are trapped in our notions of good and evil, ignoring that what is good is what is convenient for us and what is evil is what is inconvenient. We fail to see beyond the lens of morality, of traditions, of codes, to study and experience the law of our own heart. It is in this mental dualism that we are hypnotized. We only see ahead and behind, not up, that there is a higher way. But for that, the serpent must don the plumage of the condor, according to the Mayan metaphor. This is the feathered serpent, Kukulkan. There is even a temple in South America, Chichen Itza, which I believe on the vernal equinox, due to its position on the planet and during the equality of day and night, there is the famous serpents of light ascending up the steps of this pyramid. And the Mayans were profoundly intelligent and prophetic. They built in stone what we must build within the stone of our heart. We must transform ourselves from a petrified being to a being like a serpent, one that has wisdom, the prudence of the serpent, and the innocence of a dove. Kukul Khan is the feathered serpent, and they believe that this profound deity liberates the soul. Kukul Khan has been given many names in many religions. Obviously, in the Hindu yoga, it is Kundalini, the fire and intelligence of the Divine Mother, the sacred princess Saknikte, Shekinah in Kabbalah. It is the serpent raised upon a staff made of bronze or a bronze serpent made and raised upon a staff in order to heal the Israelites in the wilderness. It is the power of God. It is the energy of the divine. It is the power of life. Most of us do not know what Kukul Khan is because what instead we have is the inverted serpent, not the serpent that ascends, but the serpent that falls. Obviously, in the biblical allegory, there are two serpents, one that heals and one that tempts. They are very different. Kukul Khan liberates. The inverted serpent, the tempting serpent, only creates pain.
But they emphasize the Mayans that in order to work with the feathered serpent, which is basically the energies of God that rise up the spine and form the wings of the spirit, we have to follow very specific procedures and live the most ethical life because the wisdom of the sacred princess Saknikte, the divine mother feminine, does not reward wrongdoing, even in the mind. And so the Mayans also represented this feathered serpent or this wisdom that intoxicates the soul at the wine of Balche. This is very interesting. Balche is a traditional Mayan ceremonial drink prepared with the Balche tree bark with melapona honey. It's a fermented beverage. Obviously, there is the physical tradition of making Balche, but in reality, this is a symbol. What happens when you ferment something? In a sense, it's a form of decay. Something dies in order to create a new substance. It is alchemy. It is the transformation of a dense lead personality into the gold of the spirit. Even the Maya of Jesus allegorized the wine of Balche by transmuting it from water at a marriage. What this emphasizes is a profoundly deep teaching about how a married couple, husband and wife, work with the tree of knowledge. They create wine. They create the elevation and intoxication of the soul, not of the body. And so in the Mayan myth mythology too, you have what is known as the Yashe tree. This is the tree of life. So examine the Mayan mythology and compare it to the Bible. You have the wine of the tree of Balche and the Yashe tree, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. These are symbols. And the Yashe tree is a map of the multidimensionality of our universe. Because in the myths of the Mayans, the gods can ascend and descend from the heavenly regions down into the roots, from the heavenly realms to our physical world, and then to the hell realms. The heavens are known as Topan or El Huicat, the heavens, and the hell realms, Shibalba or Metnal. These are not physical states. These are places that we access when we dream. Ever have a nightmare? That's our own hell. And our mind belongs to it. Unless we want to seek a better way. Likewise, there are heavenly regions that can be accessed by the dream yogis who know how to harness that state of slumber with vigilance of the soul. We'll also emphasize in relation to cosmology and our divine origins, two profound deities within the Mayan tradition, which Samal Vir emphasizes in a book called Kabbalah of the Mayan Mysteries. He refers to the sacred divine father and the sacred divine mother, Ometekutli, Omesiwat, Lord and Lady of Duality, 
Ome, two. Tecutli, Lord Serpent. Ome, two. Siwat, Lady Eagle. As you can see, this is profoundly deep. You have an eagle and you have a serpent. You have the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And when you join them in a holy matrimony, you become Kuku Khan. You ascend. You rise from the mud of the earth. While this is an allegory of the soul and its creation, its transcendent development, this is also a symbol of how any universe is born because the same laws apply to the earth and to the gods, the masters, the prophets, the Buddhas, the angels. What's significant is that sacred union between husband and wife is a parallel of how divinity creates, except with profound and deep procedures, whereby the sexual act of a god is sacred, is divine. Obviously, in our current era, this is not the case. We are driven by animality. But that can change. And that actually is the beginning, the purification of the soul, whereby we awaken Kukul Khan within a marriage. Lady Eagle, Lord Serpent. Divinity creates the power of sexuality. The problem is that with our current mind and our own lust, we only see filthiness in the sexual act and not the sacrament that it could be. And like the gods, we can learn to create as gods, to be born again, according to the Maya of Jesus. But that depends upon a discipline. But here we'll talk today about how when divinity creates the universe, according to the Mayan mythology and also the Hebraic Kabbalah, it's a, only possible because of the union of divine masculine and divine feminine, and that these are eternal. Obviously, the union of man and woman in the physical sexual act has the power to create. Where else do we find the power to create through love than in sex? It is the power of divinity. But we must learn how to maximize and optimize optimize such a work, such an act. The union of the two, Omatikutli, Omesiwat, is Ometeot, which means two gods. The unity of Omatikutli, also known as Tunakagatekutli, and Omesiwat, Tunakasiwat. From them, there emerges any cosmos. The entire universe emanated from this masculine and feminine dual principle, according to Saman Vior and Kabbalah on the Mind Mysteries. But from where does divinity emerge? That unity, Ometeot, the union of male-female, divine god and goddess. It is from Omeokan. This is known as the place of duality. Ome, meaning two, and Yo, the suffix for abstractions whereby omeyot, duality, constitutes a place, kan, omeyokan, 
in our studies, we refer to Omeo Khan as the absolute. Here we have the image of the Hebraic tree of life. This is the Yashe tree, to use Mayan or Nahuatl terms. It is the same teaching. We want to emphasize that the Kabbalah is not strictly Jewish, although we are indebted to the Kabbalists of the 13th and 14th century of Catalonia, of Spain, of France, for codifying an eternal law. In the same way that Sir Isaac Newton did not invent gravity, but merely documented it. In the same way the Jewish mystics documented the tree of life and did not invent it. They were merely the vehicle of teaching the structure of the universe, the map of the cosmos, from its most divine and abstract and subtle origins to the most dense and material existence below. Notice that above these 10 spheres of the tree of life, which represent modalities of consciousness, levels of dimensionality, of expression, of, of being, that you have three spheres. We use the Hebrew terms here. Ain, Ain Sof, Ain Sof Or, which in Hebrew means the nothing, the limitless, and the limitless light. This is Omeo Khan. Omeo Khan, also known amongst the Aztecs as Yuwali Ehekat, means the place of wind and darkness. It is the eternal, abstract, supra-divine cosmic space. It is the zero dimension from which every universe, any cosmos, any order emerges. Merely to use the biblical injunction, let there be light, and there was light. Out of nothing came being, spoken through the word, the verb, as demonstrated within the Popol Vuh, the Mayan Bible. So Omeo Khan is where we originate from the void. And within the void is a beautiful, divine, profound light, like a star. If you reduce a human being in their synthesis, you remove everything that is merely extemporaneous and superficial, the layers of being up this tree of life, as you ascend more to divine states and you strip away the external and go to the core of what we are. In our synthesis, we are the Ain Sof. It is a form of light. It is a super divine cosmic state of being, a star. The Christians refer to this as the star of Bethlehem. They guided the three magi to the birth of the Maya Jesus. This is Ometeot. Ometeot is the father-mother, the union, which has not yet sent out its light into the universe in order to create. But why does divinity create any universe or unfold within the multidimensionality of our current being? It's because divinity does not know himself yet, does not know herself yet. That star does not have cognizance yet of its own divine happiness. And so seeks it by unfolding and emanating a ray. And that ray descends into the universe and creates worlds. 
enters manifestation, enters being, enters the universe. So that in the universe, in materiality, like a mirror, the consciousness can learn to see itself and gain understanding of these different levels and return with wisdom, transcending it all. Really, this is the essence of religion. We came from a divine source, and to use the Muslim injunction, from him we emerge and from him we must return, as stated in the Quran. Now, here we see a quote from Salman Vior corroborating these points. The absolute does not know itself. The absolute needs to know itself. Each super divine atom, Ain Sof, needs to know itself in order to have consciousness of its own happiness. Unconscious happiness is not happiness. The human being in his last synthesis is just a super divine atom from the absolute abstract space. That atom is known by the Kabbalists with the name Ain Sof, the limitless, the limitless joy, the limitless omniscience and being. It is urgent to know that the Ain Sof sends its spirit to the world of matter with the purpose of acquiring that which is called self-cognizance of its own happiness. When the spirit, after having passed through the mineral, plant, and animal states of consciousness, attains the human state, it can return into the Ain Sof to fuse with it. This is how the Ain Sof becomes conscious of its own happiness. In synthesis, the process by which the spirit descends into matter is known as involution. Now, obviously, for those who may be familiar with Salman Vior's text in the original Spanish, he uses the term involution or involucion in a bit of an interchangeable way. But in English, it translates better as uh, involution in terms of the spirit entering matter. Here we're talking about the English translation. When the spirit involves itself into the universe, into the different spheres of being, enters and unfolds into matter, energy, and perception at different levels, like a fountain rippling out in different layers, we have the creation of the universe. So we enter and finally, through this journey, after many, we could say aeons, even profound cosmic time, we enter and reach the last sphere below, which is known as Malkut in Kabbalah, which in Hebrew means kingdom. This is the physical world. We study the descent of spirit into matter in a very synthetic way. We also emphasize very strongly that there are laws that govern nature and that if we wish to understand and transcend these laws, more importantly, understand the laws of nature within ourselves, within our own psychology, we study the descent of the ray of creation. It is the ray of light from the Ain Sof that creates the worlds, descends into matter and energy, enters into being until finally entering us, until we reach our physical body. There are laws that govern every aspect and level of nature. There are different cosmoses as well. And a cosmos in Greek merely means unity. 
Simply put, there are different levels of resolution within the cosmic scheme in terms of our perception of things, where we resonate most, what we currently are. So while there is a cosmic plan that helped to originate the worlds, and there's a journey then trajectory that we took in a very long process of cosmic evolution, we now reach a point where we must learn to understand the laws that preceded us so that by understanding and working with them, we can return upward and experience the original divine law from which we emanated. As we're implying with the teachings of the Ain Sof, obviously that is the limitless joy of divinity and is the goal of our studies, to return to our origin with cognizance, with victory. That unity, that light, that limitless, absolute, sacred, divine sun, the limitless light of the Ain Sof 4, we call the protocosmos. It is the first cosmos. It is the world of one law. In our modern era, we think of laws as something prohibitory. Like, you obey the law so that you don't get in trouble. Right? We tend to have very superficial connotations with this word. But when we refer to divine law, we're not referring to merely a negation, but rather a subsistence a state, a quality, a way of being. In the world of one law, there is great freedom. Obviously, less restrictions. It is a unity. And because there is only one law, there is freedom. There is joy. But that joy, that light needs to know itself. So it descends into the Iocosmos which refers to all the suns and planets of the universe. This correlates with the top three spheres of the tree of life, known in Hebrew as Keter, Chokmah, Binah. In a sense, Ometeot, the one law, the unitary divine, unfolds into two, eventually, and manifests as three. So in a sense, you have father, mother, Male, female. And through the third force, their union, you create even more divine complexity and being. So from these three laws of this trinity, the Christians refer to it as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That light descends into the macrocosmos, which is the formation of a galaxy. Notice that these laws now double. So from the one law unfolds three, because through three forces, we create. Obviously, right? Even physically, a man and a woman unite sexually through the third force, the conciliatory act, and they form a child, a trinity. Divinity is no different, except that union of divine love is pure. So from three laws, now you have six. You have more complexity. Those three forces unfold and double in order to create the galaxy. This can also relate to the tree of life through the Hebrew Chesed, Geburah, and Tifereth. And when that force descends into the solar system, 
the world of the Duro cosmos, the 12 laws. You enter metaphorically into Netzach in Hebrew. That force doubles into the planet, the Mesocosmos, 24 laws. And then finally, in the worlds of Yesod and Malkut, the microcosmos, the human being, we have 48 laws. These laws double because the further this light descends into matter and involves itself, in a sense, the more it separates from the original presence of divinity. And so these mechanistic laws, in a sense, create suffering, right? Because we're in more complex states of being and matter with all of its concomitant problems. And so what we have now is our physical body relating to our vital energies known as Yasad, Malkut and Yasad, 48 laws. What's interesting is that we know we have 46 chromosomes in the body, right? Salman Vera mentions that there are two more, which are vital and etheric, constituting a total of 48, relating to these 48 laws. So even within our chromosomes, our genetics, we find the laws of nature embodied. Also, this is not the end of the ray of creation because obviously we have our physical body, but it is possible to descend into even more complex states of matter, energy, and perception. We call this the cosmos. This is the inferno. The Mitlan. Shibalba amongst the Mayans, the hell realms. And these nine inverted spheres of the hell realms go from 96 to 864 laws because in every sphere descending down into inferior states of being, the law doubles. There's more complexity. That's why it's hell. It's more laws, more, more suffering. Now we'll talk about its, in the, its purpose within the cosmic scheme, but here I'd like to emphasize some points given in the flight of the feathered serpent which talk about these seven cosmoses because the Mayan initiates knew these laws and worked with them. And so the whole point of this text is really understand our universe, where we're at, and how to return. And they refer to these layers and levels of nature as katuns. Really, it means times. Each dimension, each level of nature is like a different time, a different way of being. For the eternal one, the highest one, the one of a soul age, wanted to make descendants of seven generations. And this one is the great descendant, Malkut, the physical body, which embodies and encodes all the forces above, as stated here, which contains and maintains all the small descendants so that they maintain themselves between them. In a sense, without all of these levels and layers of nature, there would be no universe. If there were no mechanicity, the machine couldn't work. But obviously that machine is governed by intelligence. And so we also seek to govern our own mechanicity with intelligence so that we can become a very different being, a virile Maya. And obviously, from these verses you see here, the strength of a Mayan initiate is precisely the work in a matrimony with virility the source of real virtue. If you are a virile Maya, and if you are proud of your Maya, humble yourself in secret and in silence when elevating your thought to him, to the eternal one, 
to the one of a soul age, which is his own cartoon and who made all the cartoons and who also made you and who made you in his likeness, a small alike with everything that he is, even with his infinite creative words saying, for I am, for I am God. So what we want is to take the forces, even in our chromosomes, the 48 laws, our creative energies, and to elevate them. But first, to know that, we must understand the laws that keep us in suffering. We study what is known as evolution and devolution. So in nature, we find two processes. Growth and decay. Birth and death. Gestation, disintegration, creation, destruction. These laws permeate everything in this universe. And in fact, mostly constitute our whole life here physically. Notice that the forces of evolution and devolution apply to our physical body, but also infernal states of being known as the hell realms, which are these inverted nine spheres of the tree of life, the Yase tree. We call them klipot in Hebrew, the hell realms. Now, shibalba is a state of being in which forces are destroying the imperfections of the psyche. So what happens is that, you know, in our cosmic evolution, we enter first in lower states of being. When the consciousness first emerged from the Ain Sof and entered matter, especially within the in the higher dimensions of being, it started as a mineral, entering mineral bodies, mineral states, metals, stones. Our consciousness was once elemental. It was rudimentary. It was primordial, not developed, innocent. And that consciousness needs to learn to gain experience through different kingdoms of being. It does so through evolution, the forces of creation, of gestation, and development. When consciousness gains enough experience operating within mineral bodies, eventually it transmigrates into the plant kingdom, having evolved to a superior state. And the plants have their own processes, knowledge, wisdom of how to work with nature, because there's consciousness even in plants and even in stones. Consciousness exists everywhere where there is life. Consciousness, consciousness is life. And eventually when the consciousness gains development and experience in the plant kingdom, it can graduate and go to the animal kingdom. And likewise, after many, really many years, aeons, the soul enters the humanoid kingdom. It is in the humanoid kingdom having a human body where we have the potential to transcend and revolutionize ourselves to enter the kingdom of angels. We are not yet what we should be. This is the mountain of the Andes, which we must climb. There is a form of conscious evolution that is accessible to us if we know the methods. But if we do not take advantage of our human body, in order to become an angel, we devolve, we decay, we regress, we degenerate. 
And if you look at humanity today, you can clearly see that we are degenerating rapidly. We are more destructive, more cruel, more considerate, more blind, more fearful and uncertain about our future than ever before. Destruction and decay are a part of nature. This is the inevitable consequences of evolution followed by its sister, devolution. You can't have one without the other because all of nature is sustained by the balance of these two forces because everything that is created, that is born, must die. Likewise, all the imperfections and defects we created in our psyche have to die. But if we don't do so willingly, with intelligence, with wisdom, then nature will do it for us. And that's what hell is. It's a recycling plant. It's a state in which the soul, because it does not wish to progress spiritually, is taken by the forces of devolution down back into inferior bodies of the animal kingdom, then the plant kingdom, then the mineral kingdom, mineral states. And this occurs not merely just physically, but when the physical body dies and the soul transmigrates into inferior states of consciousness. Eventually, if the soul you know, descends at that point to the very bottom of the universe, the lowest spheres of the infernal regions. Eventually, the consciousness will be extracted and freed from its defects, but as an innocent elemental, in order to reinitiate the journey again. And obviously, that takes a long time, which is why we emphasize that if we wish to get out of this wheel of mechanicity, we can enter a, a higher path, a path of revolution. Even Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, the great Sufi poet, stated this, I died as a mineral and became a plant. I died as plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was man. Why should I fear? When was I less by dying? Yet once more I shall die as man, to soar with angels blessed. But even from angelhood I must pass on. All except God doth perish. When I have sacrificed my angel soul, I shall become what no mind ever conceived. Oh, let me not exist, for non-existence proclaims in organ tones. To him we shall return. So there are two forms of death here. The death of our imperfections. Nature can do it for us, or we can do it willingly. And by doing it willingly, we climb the mountain of initiation and ascend towards the sacred kingdom, the Mayab, gaining wisdom and light. This is known as the path of revolution. This is the conscious work, and it involves taking on suffering voluntarily, not avoiding it. This suffering doesn't mean physical pain. Not exclusively. doesn't mean that by entering this path, somehow one's going to you know, physically live a life like Jesus with a physical crucifixion. Obviously, we go through our own sufferings, our own passions, our own ordeals. Because this type of work is very different than a tradition of belief. Revolution is a path in which we as a soul make effort to understand our own defects and to work on them consciously so that by working on our own errors, we can extract light 
And as we gain light by working on our own defects, desires, imperfections, we call them egos. Ego itself, we elevate our spiritual level of being and ascend up the Yashe tree, the tree of life, the Kabbalah. In this way, we overcome inferior laws and return to the spirit. This is the synthesis of religion, the return. What this practically means for us is that as we're learning practices like meditation, mindfulness, self-awareness, understanding and removing and eliminating our own faults, we gain more insight and knowledge. We awaken within dreams. We no longer dream. We see the realities of internal worlds with clarity. And we rise up to higher states more and more through progressive works, progressive initiations and developments until returning to the Ein Sof Ometeot. That is just a synthesis of what this teaching embodies. If you wish to know more, we have some teachings given by Salman Vior, two books especially, we which have uh, their covers for Asset Christic Magic, The Secret Doctrine of Anahuac, which talk about the ancient uh American mysteries. We also have a book called Cobble of the Mind Mysteries, which Glorian Publishing also doesn't have a cover for yet, but these books are all available online. You can read and access and learn more about the mysteries of the South Americans, especially what they taught. We're going to continue this particular series explaining more on these concepts we're initiated today. We'll talk about the immortality of the soul according to the Mayan mystics. How by working progressively up the tree of life, the Yashe tree, we gain knowledge, we gain wisdom. And we can understand step by step what is the path itself in synthesis. So at this point in time, you're welcome to ask questions. Feel free to type them in the chat. And we'll read them off. We have a question in relation to the tree of life. To what sphere is characterized by military generals, seriousness, the colors turquoise and gold? The sphere of military generals of war is Geburah. It is Mars. Madim in Hebrew. The sphere of Geburah is the judgment of divinity. It is the strength of God in relation to how divinity provides conscience and justice in our life. It's also a very form of, it's a, in a sense, serious because the strength of Mars is a profound and divine love. We often associate Mars with the metal uh, iron, especially, but we know astrologically that Geburah is also associated with gold, the sun, because from the strength of the warrior, by fighting for the truth, spiritually within ourselves, we extract gold. That is the power of the angels of Mars, the strength of... Um, the spiritual warrior. As for turquoise, not so sure, but I know that 
iron and gold, the color red especially relates to Geborah, Mars, military intelligence, the spiritual militia. The divine beings were associated with fulfilling the justice of divinity. We have a question. How do we investigate these mysteries directly? In synthesis, meditation, and dream yoga. We gave courses on our website. We will provide in the chat. One called Gnostic Meditation. The other called Dream Yoga and Astral Travel. In those two lectures, we describe how to meditate, how to investigate those higher states of being within a state of meditation. Combining drowsiness and sleep with cognizance. There's a lot of practices in both courses. Even, I bear, honestly, I think Glorian Publishing's course on meditation essentials is even more divine, more practical, more straightforward too. Uh, we recommend that course too. But if you study the Dream Yoga and Astral Travel course we gave, we gave a sequence of, of practices that you can follow so that you can learn to waken up, awaken within dreams and investigate these things for yourself. Very step-by-step, -step, very pragmatic. So we have a question. You mentioned the emanation entering matter or the realm of matter. Where did or does the realm of matter come from? It's a deep question. In a sense, the tree of life of the Kabbalah are levels of matter. They're levels of materiality and being, just in different subtleties. When we dream, we're in the world of Hod, the astral plane. When we dream, we interact with matter. It's not physical, but it is a form of substance, of being. This is why in the world of dreams, you can fly. You're governed by different laws. You can enter through stone. You can pass through walls. You can fly over seas. You can pass through a window, through, through different objects, because that matter is not as substantial as our physical plane, but it is a form of matter. Otherwise, why would we interact with it or believe it in the moment when we're dreaming, right? I know we wake up sometimes and think, oh, that, that was just a dream. But in reality, why was it just a dream? In, in essence, because was it just not real? Because why do we believe it in the moment? It's because we're not really discriminating consciously throughout our day, understanding you know, what is going on all the time. And that's why we continue with those mechanical habits when we go to sleep. But really, those dimensions have a matter of energy and perception that is not physical. And that matter really starts from the most subtle, from the top of the tree of life, and becomes more complex in different worlds of, of the spirit until finally entering the physical plane. We'll also include a link to a lecture called, I believe, the Ray of Okidanok, given by Glorian Publishing, talks about this in more detail, but we just try to synthesize a few points that, you know, matter is a very complex thing. Physical matter is not all this, there is to see. It originated from the spirit in the higher levels of nature and became more complex until finally manifesting physically from those higher worlds. So that's the synthesis. We have a question. Can you explain deeper the Ain, Ain Sof, and Ain Sof 4? Literally, there are 
really many, many lectures on Glorian Publishing that go into a lot of detail about the Ain, Ain, Sof, and Ain, Sof 4. Probably the best source, I would say, is Salman Vior's book, Terror and Kabbalah, where he talks about, in a chapter for each section, about each of these aspects of the absolute in great detail. In synthesis, the Ain is the cosmic space, the womb, the matrix from which all life emerges. The Ain Sof is our inner star. And the light of the protocosmos, from which all being emerges, is the Ain Saw 4, the limitless light. And when that light finally materializes into the universe, it becomes physical light, but it originates from this sacred absolute sun. I suggest, uh, unfortunately, we don't have the time to really you know, expound on all the depth and beauty of these aspects of the absolute, but there are many lectures on Glorian, especially, um, but I highly recommend you study the book Tarot and Kabbalah by Samal and Vior, where he talks about these three aspects of the absolute in great detail. We have a question. So there was a mass burial pit at the uh, Chichen Itza or the Mayan temple. Why? In what circumstances were people put there? I'm not a scholar of uh, Mayan, you know, archaeology or anthropology, but my basic knowledge is that like any civilization, the Mayans had degenerated. There is evolution and devolution within cultures. And we're witnessing this now in America. There comes a point in which basically societies crumble. And the Mayans were no different. The Egyptians were no different. All the Greeks and ancient civilizations were no different. So obviously some of this, you know, some of the modern beliefs about the Mayans is that they were, you know, sacrificing people and that this was the definition of their society. But we ignore that history is complex. You know, those civilizations did degenerate into, you know, sacrifice because eventually that tradition mistranslated the idea that one should sacrifice one's ego. And not only they started to sacrifice people. You know, that's devolution there. Taking a spiritual teaching and making it degenerated. You know, that obviously happens over a long period of time, but, you know, the Mayans, you know, a lot of the civilizations did crumble. But I don't know about the mass burial there, but obviously it kind of brings to mind that that idea that, you know, the Mayans eventually decayed. So that might be an explanation. We have a question. Is there a mind mantra to help you go to the astral? Yes. I don't remember at the top of my head, but I believe you can access it in the book Esoteric Medicine and Practical Magic by Samon Vior. There's a couple of Mayan mantras given in that book where you can invoke those initiates in the internal worlds and even physically to, to help you. So I highly recommend you study that book. We have a question. Could you elaborate more on why Yab means many and Mayab is land of the few? Is the extra A the difference maker? I mean, I believe it's just the it's the syllables, right? I mean, Ma means a negation, means no. And it's interesting that the word Ma, as in Mama, mother, which a baby or infant speaks, is a representation of the Divine Mother. The uh, sacred princess Saknikte and Ma as a universal syllable means no it also means death so the death 
of our defects is the power of the Divine Mother. And she is the one that leads us up on the mountains of the Mayab. Now, as for the extra A, I'm not so certain, but as for the spelling of it, but, you know, Yab literally means many. Means many. And the negation means no. Ma. The reason why it's the land of the Mayab is because few do it. Very challenging. We have a question. Is it Ain, nothingness, that is profoundly unknowable to itself? And why is that? Why is entry to physical plane inevitable? Think of this. Is there a limit to space? Or does it just keep on going? How can one possibly know it all? Really, it's a mind-boggling thing. The cosmic space, the Ain, has its center everywhere and its circumference nowhere. It is the number zero, numerically, Kabbalistically. It is unknowable to itself because it is the infinite and even beyond the infinite. It is the seity. It is Omateot. Omateot, the being, is a great mystery. Why do some beings not know themselves really well that's something we need to discover in ourselves explore meditate experience now entering physical matter and energy is uh, inevitable because it's just the laws of being coming to fruition in a sense we need a physical body to do this work because our physical body malkut the kingdom in hebrew is the amalgam or the concretization of all the forces from above. We need a receptacle. In a sense, our physical body is like a chalice, an amphora of clay, which we must bake in the fire of divinity through the Mayan language, the Mayan metaphor, to receive the wine of Balche. The physical body is needed because the spirit needs to learn how to master matter. That's why the spirit enters into the universe. Because in the Ain, one is free, but has no cognizance. And so the, the divine wants to know itself. In order to do it, it creates the universes so that it can reflect itself like a mirror. I believe even Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi mystic, explained the same thing. That Allah must see himself through the mirror of the soul. And so the physical body is necessary. We need matter, the world, so that we can see ourselves. Think of it like, you know, if the world gets more complex and more difficult, you know, that's kind of the seed plot or the matrix, the ground, the foundation by which to finally master the worst circumstances in order to go up. So we need that controversy or contrariety, that difficulty, so that through the friction of the spiritual work, by working consciously in ourselves and suffering voluntarily for past mistakes and changing our, our behaviors, we can enter a superior way with wisdom. So some level of temptation or knowledge is needed so that we can overcome matter. And that's the whole point of the universe and the work. This is a continuation of the former comment about 
how does matter come into being? So what I'm understanding is, as the emanation expands, matter is created at the same time. Think of the enfoldment of matter like, you know, imagine like a fountain with many levels, you know, like one of those that has a source in the center and the water trickles down, right? Like little by little, you see the water in a fountain go down to a second level and then a third level and then a fourth. In the same way, the universe is the same way. And the same thing with matter, you know? When we think of matter, we think of physical you know, experience, what we can touch and feel and see. And when we think of emanations, you know, in terms in the spiritual sense, when you think of it in the Kabbalistic way, because each of the spheres are called sephirot, which mean emanations. It means that there is a original divine source and that it sends out its light. In a sense, it's like an expansion, but also it's like an involution. That light enters matter itself. In a way, when that light enters the universe and becomes matter in different dimensions, it's like, in a sense, that light almost is, uh, in a sense, creating. We, we know from science that matter is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes forms. In the same way that light, which was once unitary and divine, pure, when it emanates and unfolds into different levels of complexity, becomes matter, becomes experience. It's a form of creation, you could say, but in a sense, it's just a transformation. All creation and destruction, evolution and devolution too, is a form of birth and death. You don't essentially destroy that which makes the thing because that still exists. Even consciousness exists no matter what the forms it takes that are created or destroyed because the soul is eternal. But it can change forms and develop in different levels. And as consciousness and light, which are synonymous, divinity enters into the universe that expansion is in a sense a transformation that light com uh, complicates itself unfolds in itself so that the universes are born I mean, it's a very deep thing i mean very profound it's hard to hopefully my explanation is clear but or even approaches the topic with some adequacy but i'm suggesting that if you wish to understand what this really means from experience, what different dimensions are like, and how this process unfolded over many aeons, study dream yoga, learn to astral travel, awaken within that dream state, and learn to experience matter and energy at a different level. In that way, you can investigate things which you can't with your physical senses or your intellect. Because, you know, this spiritual stuff is really only explorable through the consciousness, not the mind. We have a question. Can you please explain the difference between working on our ego and how modern psychology defines ego sometimes as a positive characteristic? We have a very distinct way of using the psychological terms, which obviously diverges from mainstream psychology and with good purpose. You know, this is not to say that there's no value within the mainstream psychological traditions and the work that psychological professionals are doing. I think that we can get lost in semantics too, because a lot of what, you know, psychologically many professionals would deem a healthy sense of self 
is what we in our studies would call dignity. You know, the consciousness, the soul has a sense of self-worth, not egotistical, not in a sense of like a grasping at a me or mine, but it is an identity which is truly humble and dignified and pure. So when the uh, mainstream psychologists refer to ego, like, you know, if you think of like Freudian terms, you got self or ego and, you know, superego or the id, especially, which is very common, like, you know, the lower animal sex drives and things like that. You know, there's some value and credence to those, you know, methods and, you know, understandings. But when we talk about ego in our studies, we're trying to emphasize the context within a spiritual work. The kind of work we're trying to do in our Gnostic tradition is very different from mainstream psychology. You know, and unfortunately, there are, um, you know, while there's many great people working in then modern psychology who are doing great things, I think sometimes what people fail to understand in relation to this tradition is that, you know, while we have the id or anger or pride or negativity, frustration, qualities that they take, you know, we honestly take for granted. And that's something that's going to be with us forever. In our tradition, we go a lot farther. We emphasize that elements like anger and pride, you know, animal instincts and things that we take for, you know, our identity are in the context of the spirit are not real. Not real from a sense of experience, but not real within substantiality you know like in context you know divinity is the real you know reality state of being which is very sacred and profound and beautiful but you know what we call ego is something that we wish to transform and transcend but you know mainstream psychology you know, they don't think that, you know, you could possibly remove these drives or whatever that in a sense repressing or even indulging to them to a large extent could be harmful, which we agree with. The difference lies in the fact that there are levels of consciousness and that what we call ego is something very distinct to a particular perspective. If we learn to self-observe ourselves and understand and study our mind and action and practice some of the techniques of this tradition, like meditation, we can verify and see that, you know, really the ego is all the, what is really negative is, you know, pride and anger and all that. It's a matter of perspective and experience, you know, but obviously there is a sense of self that is healthy, that we need. And that real self, that real authentic identity, which is very, you know, stable and profound and divine is in is the consciousness so yeah we use the term differently there's uh two lectures given by uh an instructor from glorian which goes into a lot of detail about this especially i think it's called gnostic psychoanalysis there's two parts on their website and they kind of go back and forth describing how we define ego and how the modern psychologists define ego and like looking at the parallels but also the you know the nuances too which you know are very deep. I don't know all of them, but I recommend those two lectures especially to kind of guide you in that.
We have a question. Could you elaborate then what the sphere of Gedullah would be characterized by? Gedullah or goodness is mercy, the spirit, known as Hased in Kabbalah. That is our innermost being, the spark of divinity, our inner Buddha. And so that inner Buddha, Gedullah, goodness, is really God, and our own particular individual God, to put it in synthesis. We have a question. I've heard that Mayans were Atlantean, Atlanteans, that they didn't ex become extinct, just evolved to an upper dimension. Is it true? Salman Vera says that the Mayans descended from Atlantis. He also said that there were certain sectors of the Atlantean civilization that, while everybody else was degenerating and destroying themselves, had escaped. So some of them, you know, have access to ships and technology at that time which in a sense are, you know, interdimensional, not merely physical anymore. Like they can travel through the different levels and layers of space because they had revolutionized themselves spiritually and were allowed by divinity to be able to continue with those vehicles while the rest of their civilization was drowned. Even the word atal, which you find as a suffix of many words like nawat, nawatl, Atlantis means water in Nahuatl, the traditional Mayan language. So there's a deep wisdom there, you know, very profound. Study those books that Salman Vera wrote. He talks all about exactly answering your question. We have a question. Can we say that in essence, every galaxy is a resurrected master or a bodhisattva? So amongst the masters and the prophets, there are levels. Some initiates acquire more knowledge and more wisdom in accordance with their work. So to use the metaphor of the, the amphora, some amphoras can contain more because there's a deeper work there. Obviously, it involves more difficulty and challenges. Some initiates rise very high because they were very fallen. You know, it's a law of divine nature. You know, the further one is downwards, one could, if they repent and change, can go higher. And so there are different levels of gods or beings or masters who govern different elements of the cosmos. You know, some bodhisattvas, there are, you know, initiates who incarnate bodhi, the light, or the sattva or essence of ometeot, have wisdom and knowledge relating to a the earth or a planet. Some have the knowledge of a star or a sun. Some have knowledge of a galaxy. And there are even more rare beings who have knowledge of many inf of an infinite, which are many, you know, billions of galaxies. So there's, there's a level, there's layers and levels of accomplishment. And we know that Jesus of Nazareth was pretty much the highest that we know of on this planet. He has the knowledge of many infinites, which is why he's, you know, really incomprehensible, very divine being. But yeah, the galaxy is governed by beings like the innermost God. You know, we have to say that the, the Bodhisattva is not the master. Really, the being that governs any constellation is the innermost or is, you know, in Greek terms, Christ, the divine. The Bodhisattva or the human initiate is merely the M4 that can reflect the light. 
I think we have one more question. Uh, so uh, in terms of the nature of light, is that relating to the region of Barbello within Aztec mythology? Yes. Bar, bello. Bar, meaning fire, and bell, meaning light. The realm of fire and light, which is the Ain Sof Or, to use uh, Hebrew terms, but also relating it to the Gnostic scriptures. Okay, so I thank you all for coming. Appreciate the turnout. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.